invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of John. There at the beginning of the New Testament, John chapter 21. The resurrection of Christ from the dead changed the lives of his closest followers, the disciples. And of those disciples, the one named Simon Peter stands out. Most of us know him simply as Peter. And he is very prominent through all four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's very prominent through the public ministry of of Jesus. And I want to give some immediate results of the resurrection and the life of Peter that we find in chapter 21 of John. I'll begin reading in verse 1, the first 25 or so verses. Hear God's word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When, Peter, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? 
When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So ends the reading of God's word. Let me tell you about Peter and why I selected him uh, for today. We first meet Peter early in the gospel accounts. And he and his brother Andrew are fishing at the Sea of Galilee. They are partners in a profitable, a rather lucrative fishing business. Along with them in this business are James and John. And so Peter was a fisherman, and I I like that about him because it says he was a common man. He He was not among the elite, highly educated, or very wealthy of his day. Probably all of us would have been at ease with Peter. You might have enjoyed sitting and talking with him. When Jesus calls Peter to follow him, there's no hesitation. There's no scrambling to take care of his material possessions. There's no backward glances over his shoulder. Jesus called, Peter followed. So he was willing. And we find also, as we get to know Peter in the Bible, that he was very teachable. And so it tells us he was decisive. His commitment was rock solid. He was He was far beyond words only. So early in the public ministry of Jesus, uh, Peter became one of the 12 disciples, that group of men that Jesus would pour himself into, training them for ministry, not just while he was here on earth, but especially for afterwards. We learn something else about Peter. Mark chapter 1 tells us about a miracle Jesus did with Simon's mother-in-law. That tells us Peter was married. He probably had children, so we assume Peter was a family man. We know that while he followed Christ, he rose to a position of leadership among the disciples. Matthew tells us these are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. First there did not mean necessarily that it's first in the list. It means first as of importance or most prominent. In other passages, we learn that he was a spokesman For the disciples, he would ask questions of Jesus that maybe the others were a little hesitant to ask, but they'd kind of say, Peter, we'd like to know this. And he was bold enough to ask Jesus those questions. Also, when some of the critics, even some of the enemies of Jesus came to him, sometimes they directed their question to Peter, saying, why does your master not pay a certain tax? That lets us know that Peter was seen as a leader among the disciples. So those are some of the things we learn about Peter. But without question, what is often remembered about Peter is how he denied the Lord on the very night that Jesus was arrested. Many of us here are in these small group Bible study accountability groups called journey groups. And one of the assignments, if you're in a journey group, you know within the first weeks of beginning that group, that everyone is asked to... uh, chart out a graph of their spiritual journey. And you might say, well, as a child, I heard these things. I came to faith in Christ, and my life like that has been somewhat like, you know, they're somewhat predictable. With Peter's, there's no question that it probably would have gone like this, and then on the night he betrayed Jesus, it would have been a major dip. And if he were to chart it out, I'm not sure if he would have made it come back up. By the, by the time we meet him in John 21, I'm not sure if he thinks he's out of that uh, cavern of disappointment. 
What had happened? Well, at the final, uh, the Last Supper, Jesus had told Peter that before the night was over that he would deny him three times. And Peter, in front of all the others, said, not me. Uh, maybe others, but not me. I will never deny you. And of course, you remember the story in the early morning hours during Jesus' uh, mock trial uh, leading up to the crucifixion. And a servant girl sees Peter and others standing by a fire. And he says, you, she says, you, you, were, you were with him. You're one of his followers. And he denies it. He denies it ultimately three times. And at the end of Mark 14, it said he broke down and wept after the, the rooster crowed. And so this was a big-time failing on Peter's part. So I want you to see a couple of things this morning. First, that the resurrection shows us the grace and mercy of God. By the time we catch up with Peter here in John chapter 21, he has left Jerusalem. He has left where they have seen Jesus earlier, the resurrected Jesus. So he knows that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But now he has traveled a hundred miles or so north of Jerusalem to Galilee. That's his, that's his home area. That's where he's from. And he's gone back to his former way of life, and that is fishing. And so at the beginning of chapter 21, some time has passed now. He's been back there for a little while. And so when he says, I'm going fishing to the other fellows, it's not as though some of you on a Friday afternoon on a May warm afternoon say, hey, let's go fishing and grab a rod and reel and head off to some pond or dare the Okmulgee or something like that. That's not what he meant. He was a commercial fisherman. And so when he says, let's go fishing, he means we are going to work. We are going to work to catch fish. And so they go and that's what they're doing. But we need to realize what is going on in Peter's heart and mind for him even to return to Galilee back to his previous business before he started following Christ. He has failed the Lord. He has failed the Lord. He has failed himself. And he feels very disappointed, certainly disappointed with himself. How can he ever be an apostle? How can he ever be, as Christ had said, a fisher of men? How would he preach the good news of Christ? He had followed Christ for between two and three years, all the time Jesus had spent with them, all the lessons, all the after meetings when he would speak to the multitude, then come back, talk to the, the 12 disciples, and then often would take Peter, James, and John and spend more time explaining things to them. He had gotten the best training you could get. But... Spiritually, he had bombed. I wonder if there's anyone here today who understands what it means to fail. I don't mean just a, a, their small failures. I'm talking about huge, life-changing, life-altering failures. And that's what Peter had done, so he felt. He had let Jesus down. He had let the other disciples down. He had promised, even in front of the others, to be committed. He had violated that commitment. So whether he deserved it or not, in his mind, he had a great sense of failure. Do you know how failure can cripple people? There are some of us here that if we had been in Peter's shoes, if we had done what he had done and denied Jesus only to see him then, not that it would made a difference, crucified and so forth, we would be in therapy for the rest of our lives. Maybe some of us are in therapy for the rest of our lives for things far smaller than that. So put yourself 
in Peter's mind and heart. Some people can't wake up because they feel crippled and debilitated by that. How could Simon Peter ever be an apostle? How could he ever be useful in the kingdom again? He says to the others, let's go fishing. I'm going fishing because at least I know something about that. Sometimes when people fail publicly, what do they do? They go to their back of their home. They move back with their parents. They go back to their, what they were doing before. And maybe there's something inside of us that says, at least I know how to do that. I may not can do this, but I can do that. So off they go. They fish all night, all night long. How many did they catch? Goose egg, zip, zero. When they are coming back to the beach for the Bassmasters weigh-in, there isn't going to be anything to weigh. And as they're coming back at dawn, a shadowy figure is there on the beach, about 100 yards away, John tells us. And the boy says, friends or children, have you caught anything? Now, that would be irritating, wouldn't it, if you'd been fishing all night and not caught anything? Well, they've caught nothing. He says, drop down your nets on the other side of the boat, and they do, right on the other side. And they begin to pull them up, and they feel they've gotten some cinder blocks in the nets. It is so heavy. And John, the author of the Gospel of John, recognizes what's going on. He says, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps into the water. He half wades, half swims to shore makes his way to Jesus. Look now at how the resurrection of Christ has power to bring restoration. You know the story, you probably heard it a lot, even though I just reread it, about Jesus asking him three times, three times. But before we look at that, there's a humbling lesson here. Why would Jesus not allow Peter and the others to catch that night one solitary fish? Not one. I think the reason is because he wanted to show Peter that Peter could not even catch fish unless Christ willed it. And that might sound harsh, but it's really the mercy of God. When we try to run from God, or when we try to we sink in discouragement because of our own remorse or guilt or disappointment, that's what Peter's doing. He's running away. And it's as though Jesus says to him, no. You want to catch fish? You will catch fish if I will it. And so what happens is they catch more fish than they could imagine. A hundred and over 150. God has other plans for Peter rather than allowing him to return to his old way of life. Many of us here know Wayne Herring. Wayne has preached here a number of times. Uh, he pastors a church in Nashville. He's on the pastoral staff. Many of us have kept up with him because of his wife's cancer the past few years. Uh, we had Wayne to speak to our staff a number of years ago in a, in a meeting, and he told us something that even though I'd known Wayne for many, many years, I'd never heard him say. I knew that as a young man, as a high school student and college student, he did not want to become a preacher. In fact, most of his friends were going to a certain college in Mississippi, and he said, if I go there, I'm going to end up becoming a preacher. I'm going to Mississippi State, and I know I won't become a preacher. So he went to Mississippi State. And during the summer, while he was in college, he went and helped on the work staff at the Theological Institute at Pensacola. A number of you years ago remember that, I don't know if it still goes on, but every summer there would be this large conference in Pensacola put on by uh, McElwain Church there. 
and they would bring in world-known Bible teachers and authors to speak. And Wayne was there, and he said, I, uh, I was there, and I was on the track in college. I was going to go into business. I was going to make a lot of money, and then I was going into politics. He said that's what was in his mind. And he said, yeah, I was in the cafeteria where everyone was going to come and eat, and they had not opened the doors yet for the, the meal to begin and for the people to come in. So he said, I was over in the corner with a mop, and I was mopping and cleaning up by this table, and the door opened, and D. James Kennedy, who was one of the speakers, came in by himself. And he said, this huge room, he walked, he went and got his food, and he came right over and sat right where I was working, out of that whole room. And he began to talk to me. We had never met. He said he didn't know me, but he asked me who I was and what I was doing. And as Wayne would say, he was going, yeah, I'm, God needs Christians in business. I'm going to be a Christian businessman. Yeah, I'm going to make a lot of money for the Lord. Need to support missions and everything. Was going on and on, talking about his big plans. He said, D. James Kennedy looked at him and said, young man, I've never met you. I don't know you, but when I walked through that door, God told me to come over here and sit and tell you he has called you to be a preacher. Well, you and I may think, I can run from God, not that it's the call to be a preacher or something such as that, but following him, and God has a way even providentially of turning that. Peter's going fishing, I'm going to go back to my fishing business, and Christ says, no, you're not going to catch anything. I've got bigger fish, more fish for you to fry spiritually speaking. So he says, bring the fish. He prepares us breakfast. Isn't this wonderful? This is just a side note for those of us that like food. Here is Jesus in a resurrected body. He's having breakfast. Maybe there'll be food in heaven. Don't despair. And it's an extraordinary thing that John points out that when they get there, uh, Jesus says, bring your fish, but he's already got the breakfast. He's got it prepared. So this is all to do with the supply and the demand, you might say, of the providence of God. And he's saying to Peter, I'm not going to let you run away because I've got something else for you to do. What is Jesus doing to Peter here? He is humbling him. He is bringing him down. Now we may think, wait, I thought he was already humbled. He's already, so to speak, got his tail between his legs and he's run back to Galilee. He already feels bad. And that's not what I'm talking about. You and I can beat ourselves up and be down on ourselves, and that's not true humility. Uh, maybe that's a refusal to accept the forgiveness of God and think, well, I'll just punish myself because really God ought to be punishing me. So a lot can be there, but he's humbling him now. And so he begins to ask him three times, do you love me? And you've probably heard it said, he asked him three times, do you love me, because he denied him three times. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. But regardless, he's asking him this, and he's showing Peter, you cannot even fish. You cannot even fish unless I will for you to catch them. Peter later writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Peter learned about humility. He, he learned it from his own experience. Look at the power of the resurrection to transform life. While they're gathered around the campfire, Jesus takes Peter aside. He asks him three times, do you love me? And then he tells him, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. What is he doing with Peter at that point? 
He is reestablishing Peter in the role of a shepherd, of a spiritual shepherd, of an apostle, of a pastor, preacher, so forth. That's what he's doing by asking him those questions. Tend my sheep, feed my lambs. He's calling Peter eventually even to lay down his life for him. In verse 21, it tells us after they've had this conversation, Peter looks over and he sees John. That's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says, well, what about this guy? What about him? What's going to happen with him? And Jesus basically rebukes him and says, that's up to me. You just need to focus on yourself. You follow me. And Peter did. Let me show you or just explain to you how Peter's life was transformed after this. After this event on the beach, we get into the book of Acts, which follows the the gospel accounts, and we find out this. In Acts chapter 1, it was Peter who took the lead in choosing a disciple to take Judas' place. In Acts chapter 2, it was Peter who became the spokesman for the first evangelistic outreach at Pentecost. It was Peter who, with John, healed the lame man at the temple, we find in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 4, we find that it's Peter who defied the Sanhedrin when they told him to quit preaching in the name of Jesus, and Peter said no. In Acts chapter 5, it was Peter who presided over the grim task of dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts chapter 8, it was Peter who dealt decisively with the deceit of Simon the magician. It was also Peter who reached out to Cornelius, a Gentile, after God revealed to him that the gospel would be extended universally. And it's Peter who's used to pen those letters at the end of the New Testament, known as First and Second Peter. This was the man who had failed. But this was the man whom the resurrected Christ life was transformed. Some of you have committed sins which you think have rendered you useless to the Lord. Oh, you may say, well, he's forgiven me, but you think he... You don't have high hopes that God can use you. Because of the resurrection of Christ, you can look not only to forgiveness, but you look to the resurrected Christ for transformation, for transformation in your life and in my life. John states his purpose for writing the gospel. He does that in the chapter previous to this one, in chapter 20. Here's what John says his purpose is in writing the gospel of John. He says, These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You know, John could have stopped with the the account of Jesus' public ministry, of the account of his crucifixion, of the account of his resurrection and post-resurrection appearances. He could have stopped there. Why then does he devote the better part of a chapter after telling all that to reveal what's said to Peter? I think he's stuck with his original intent. He writes so that believing you may have life in his name. Here's my opinion. Here's my guess at why he does that. Because it's got an evangelistic tone. John is writing so that people may come to know this gospel, to have trust in Christ as their Savior. I think we live in such a harsh world, and there is not grace in this world. There's not grace in this culture. Don't confuse grace with the ideas of tolerance for certain things. That's not grace. That's not mercy. Often that is, I don't care about you, so do what you want to do. You know, often that's there. But grace is hard to be found. You make a public mistake, whether you're in politics or sports or the media, or what, and you pretty much can't live it down. 
in this, in this day and age. There's just not grace and mercy. What do we have here? We have a very personal example of God's grace and mercy to Peter after the other things have been dealt with, of the difference it made when Christ comes to him. I think that we live in a culture that thinks, oh, well, oh, a Christian, you think you make God pleased with you by living according to the Ten Commandments. That's really what the culture tends to think, if they think anything at all about it. Oh, you just live a certain way. You try to love others and live by the golden rule. Well, if that was, if that was the intent, we all fail. We're all in hot water with God because we'd have to do it perfectly and none of us can. We believe that Christ came as a substitute and we accept his payment for sin, for my sin. And when people that have never heard that begin to hear it, they say, I've, I've never heard anything like this. Uh, one of my longtime friends is Fred Harrell. Fred... Uh, Fred planted and pastors City Church in San Francisco. If you've ever been to the City Church, it meets in the Russian Center there in downtown San Francisco. And I heard him tell of a few years ago about a man who visited their church. This man at that time was 50 years old, and he was brilliant. And he had a Ph.D. in economics from Berkeley. He had taught at a number of universities, and at that time, he was working for a brokerage firm in San Francisco. His background religiously, according to what he said, was that he had been raised as a secular atheist from a Jewish background. That was it. Secular atheist from a Jewish background. Well, one day at work, someone he worked with said to him, uh, what's your life purpose? What's your, why are you living? What, what, what's your purpose in life? And he just simply responded back, I don't know do my best, I guess. And so this friend said, I have a church I want you to visit in the middle of San Francisco. And you only, I only want you to go one time and just try it. And the guy said, I know what they're going to say. He says, no, you don't. Just go one time, go anyway. And so he did. And after he went to that church, he was saying, I had no idea. This is what Christians believe. I had no idea. Four months after arriving at that church, he is baptized in front of the entire congregation. And his wife is there in the congregation looking on in abject horror. She cannot believe that her husband has become a Christian. And literally during the service, she runs out the door. Fred, last I talked to him, said that now she was in a similar process, this wife, meeting with some other women, talking about these things. And you know what she's saying? I had no idea this is what Christianity is all about. That God comes down and actually does something on our behalf and doesn't just tell me to clean up my act. Now that's good news, made possible by the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you that Christ is alive, that that is a demonstration of victory over sin and over death. May we know not only forgiveness, but also the transforming power of the gospel. In his name we pray. Amen.